People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book, Stephen Kravitz here in the studio in Johannesburg. And for today's show, we have an author interview for the first half of the show. A Catonian cook, uh, chef, owner of a um, owner of a now my mind goes blank of a popular deli on Bree Street. It's um, local Cape Townian foodie celebrity Nurit Saban who's joining us on the line. Her new book is Olami. Olami is also the name of her deli on Bree Street in Cape Town. And welcome to the Chai FM studios, Nirit. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the line. That's our pleasure, our pleasure. I've gone through your book, then my wife has gone through your book, and then our children have gone through your book, looking at all the absolutely delicious food that's been so beautifully reproduced in the top quality photographs we're looking at the different menus that you the different recipes and the creativity but before we get to the actual book i do this to all my authors when i interview them Nirit saban is a person with a personal history your own preferences rooted in a number of cultures please introduce yourself to our audience not everyone has been to cape town and we need to know who Nirit saban is in your own words on your own terms um, <laughs> that's quite a big question. Um, there's something I'm still figuring out. But um, basically, I'm a chef uh, in Cape Town, and um, my style at the moment is all about home style, natural food, um, simple and uncomplicated, and just keeping it fresh and light and easy. Um, and we've got quite a wide range of flavors on the table, um, obviously, influenced from my travel. So the whole theme is all about global food and just highlighting. All the beauties of the world in 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 a little space, um, using uh, food as a medium. Um, how, yeah. How did you end up in Cape Town? How did I end up in Cape Town? Well, no, I was born in Cape Town. My parents are Israeli, um, and they've been living here for the past thirty-seven years. Um, so I've always this is actually my hometown. But I worked in Israel in my in my like earlier career um, for two amazing restaurants. Well, one was a confectionery and one was a full blown um, like a top, like almost a mission style restaurant. And um, and then I came back to Cape Town and we started the second Tababa branch with my sister. And then now we've become independent. And the one in town is Olami and. Yeah, it's just been a natural progression of, um, just, I guess, luck and hard work and determination. How were you educated and inducted into foodie culture? For your family? Into food culture. Into food culture, yes, or foodie, yeah. Um, Through family, through professional training, what's the Um, underpinnings? Yeah, it's it's been a mix of the two. Um, So basically, my parents are big-time cooks at home. My whole family, actually, are all avid cooks. Um, and it's always just been something I almost grew up into, and it's and it's been a natural feeling for me. Um, and when it came to deciding after school for matric, basically, what am I going to do for the rest of my future? It was just an easy decision that cooking was something I wanted to experiment with and discover and continue the journey. Um, so I went to the TCA, the Culinary Academy, and was used to be in Woodstock, and now it's actually at the Faxburg Wine Estate, and did um, my chef degree there although I always say that you know um, cooking is all trial and error and it's an applied art so 
it all comes with experience. So as much as I got the theory and I got a really good base understanding, um, after that it was all about um, actually cooking and working for other people and learning as many styles as possible and then bringing it all over the years into one little concept, which is basically a very open open style that we've got going on at the moment. Um, so we very, as much as it's, I've, I guess I've got a, the classic degree and everything, it's, it's, we are more laid back than anything. I mean, it's it's more home style than anything else. Which brings me to my next question, which is what is your philosophy? I can't hear, Stephen, sorry, I can't hear you. To the next question, what is your overall philosophy when it comes to food? When it comes to food? Yeah, and preparing food and serving food. Um, it's very simple, and it's something I've become even more sort of acutely aware of. But my philosophy is just to keep it natural, use all the fruits of nature, just try to highlight the ingredients that you're actually using and not create a concept that is sort of unknown or, or something that's unfamiliar, and rather stick with you know, the feeling that you've got and take that to a whole other level. Um, and yeah, it's just all very natural. I try and keep it as simple as possible, um, and just stick to nature. Nature is my backbone. What influences have had the greatest impact on you? You said you had a classical cook, you know, chef degree, but you've also travelled widely. What what cuisines inform your actual your actual chef work? Well, everything actually inspires me. That's why the, we changed the name, or the one in town is now called Olami. Olami means worldly, global, universal. And um, the biggest inspiration to me is actually the world and the, um, all the different flavors that that um, each little city or country or village has and mastered over the years. I find that incredibly intriguing to travel and experience that and then try and reinvent or recreate and bring that feeling back to the Cape Town flavor. Um, so I would say the greatest influences are definitely my family because that's where my soul comes from and the feeling that the touch that I've got and the energy that actually, you know, comes through me. But that with the world, with the mysterious, with the unknown is, is what I'm, you know, is my journey at the moment. What places have you been to that have inspired your cooking that you've borrowed ideas from? Well, at the moment, it's um, all about Southeast Asia, Asia, um, that side of the world. It's totally fascinating. And, I mean, their craft and the way that they master each dish. You know, you can find one guy just making rice pancakes with a little bit of fried onion and mushrooms, and he's just doing that all day for, like, it seems like maybe his whole life since he was a little kid. And that captivating feeling that I got watching them and tasting that and, and, and actually being there with them, um, especially in Vietnam um, and in Thailand. It was really inspiring. Japan on a whole other level. But I would say at the moment I am feeling a really strong connection with Asia uh, just because it's also so unfamiliar and I like playing around with those unfamiliar flavors and, and bringing it to our, t- to our table. Um, and who knows, yeah, what's next? <laughs> what ingredients are you putting into your food now? And what, what, what type of exotic ingredients have you included in recipes in Olami? In the book. In the yes. Well, in the book. In the book. In, oh, the, in the book? Yes. But what was the question? Which ingredients? Yeah, what exotic ingredients? What uh, what new things can we expect if we, you know, we're all going to go out and buy a copy of Olami because everyone now in Joburg has heard about it on the show. What can they expect? What what what, what type of ingredients 
can mean expecting um, or lambing? Very basic, simple ingredients that most people would stock at home. That was the idea also when I created the book, is I wanted to do something that I was sure that anybody would give it a try and wouldn't feel intimidated by the list of ingredients. So if you actually page through and look at the recipes, it's all very um, like simple and minimalist. There isn't more than maybe at the most like 12 ingredients in it. So I would say people would expect um, to use all your basic ingredients that you stock at home, like onion, chili, garlic, potato, butternut, all the simple ones, and then just adding a little something different to it. So there is the classic, but it's got a bit of an edge to it, and sometimes there's some um, there's something completely you know out of context in it, but it actually all works. And that's been um, the greatest sort of um, discovery is actually just playing around with all those ingredients and just making it more special than what most people would think it is, um, just because they're common ingredients. But there isn't anything there that you can't get in Cape Town except for maybe the Zatka, which is quite um, quite a source to find, even though we stock it here at the shop and also the Tchina. Um, but yeah, all the ingredients are all locally sourced. You can get it all at your even at your basic supermarket. So there's no need to mission around and and um, in like um, waste time. Everything you should actually already have at home, all your essentials, if you are a cook. <laughs> so, yeah, we've kept it very simple in that way. That's one of the points my wife pointed out. She says when she looks at international cookbooks, the difficulty of finding the specific ingredients actually sometimes yeah. puts her off a recipe. But in yeah. Olami, as you said, every ingredient, or almost all the ingredients, are very, very easily available. And one or two specialist ones you will find in a shop close to where you live. It's not, it's not, you know, we're not going to go buy some exotic Japanese ingredient that no one's ever heard of. 100%. And that was it was very important for me because I also, um, I hardly ever look at recipe books. And as soon as I open one and it starts to become so technical, there's all these different layers, it just overwhelms me and, and then you don't even want to cook anymore. So I just wanted to create something that also, also just to, because, you know, I think with the whole food trend, there's all these different styles at the moment, all these awesome different uh, ingredients that you can get from all over the world now. But it's not always available. And um, I just wanted to create like a very basic start to cooking for, for the people that actually maybe have never even attempted it or for the ones that actually are, you know, home cooks for them for, for it to just be easily um, like understandable, you know. We'll be back with Niritza Ban, who is the chef at the Olami and the Sababa Delis in Cape Town, straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book. We're talking to Neritza Ban in Cape Town, and we're talking about her latest cookbook. It's called Olami. It's also the name of her deli, one of her two delis in Cape Town. Olami is Hebrew for global, international, universal, and she's tart, subtitled the book Simple, Nourishing, and Fresh. Nerit. How do you come up with new recipes, especially at a time like ours when there are so many cookbooks being published? And how do you find new recipes that are relevant and that need to be published? Um, uh, pretty, uh, I did quite organically, actually, I mean, for lack of a better word. But over the years, um, we basically what I do is I actually just order a very large variety of ingredients and we always have a full fridge stock and our storeroom is always full of fresh 
stock which comes daily. Nothing sits in, in our shop for more than two days. And whatever is right in front of me will just um, create something. Like, obviously, there's a lot of base understandings with the cooking side of things. But when it comes to salads and raw things, we just um, you, we just kind of create it as we go. You know, we've got a, a very big, strong lunch rush um, during between 11 and 1 every day. And sometimes we sell out quite quickly. So it, a lot of salads have been created actually by... In just quickly having to make up something um, and just bring to replenish for the shop for the customers and in, in that way by default we've created new sellers that have actually been some of our most popular and some that have actually landed up in our new Olami cookbook um, so it's very I don't I use um, again nature as my inspiration I am inspired by going to all the markets all the organic markets in Cape Town and in general when I travel a lot and just let the ingredients speak to me, really, um, and try and create my own style and rather than copying someone else's dishes or something. Um, so I like to experiment in that way. Sometimes, of course, it doesn't work. Um, but, you know, and then, then I learn in that way and then move on and try and find that balance. I like using, you know, the balance of sweet, salty, bitter, sour, um, you know, the whole mummy flavors and, and playing around with that, but doing it in a very simple, light way. So that it's not over, um, so it's just not like overwhelming to anybody, and that also if it still needs to be developed in some way, we know which element needs to go up a notch or something. But um, I do it very casually. I use it as a space so that I can actually um, be creative, and um, yeah, and just to discover it on my own. Um, but everything inspires me. Life is inspiring. Music, um, every element about it is, is a fuel to my fire. Your, your your food's also very accessible. There's no molecular gastronomy here. You're not asking us to spray aerosols of tastes on our tongues. It's authentic, real food. I can see that this is an important, important theme in your in your in your delis and in your cooking. Most definitely. In fact, exactly. And that's you just hit the nail on the head. It's the number one. Um, aspect that I like to stay true to um, that is the authenticity of everything not only through cooking and in everything in my life um, so yeah cooking is my medium to express that and also to explore that and um, for me you know I think like I said earlier there's so many different styles and concepts these days but the one that rings true or resonates um, in my heart the most is the most authentic and I think nature gives us everything there's no need to complicate it we just need to work with it in harmony and um, and find the juice you know in every little element that we use and that's up to us as individuals to create that and to and to take a chance you know and, and not be scared cooking food is, is a source of na- uh, sustenance and nourishment not only to your body but to your your soul and your mind and um it's very important for me that I know that I'm feeding every part of my essence and also for the customers, obviously. And I think they feel that. And as, as, as much as we like to create, you know, new dishes and stuff, what we've noticed is, you know, the more simple we do things, the more attraction it gets. And that is it's just, just that is the, the honest truth. And I'm going to stick with that as far as I can go. You are part of a burdening industry, the foodie culture industry. And today there are not only TV programs, but the whole TV channels devoted to foodie culture, to cooking. 
cookbooks don't only come out, you know, one at a time, but there are whole publishing departments in all the big publishing companies just to produce cookbooks. Chefs are celebrities, international celebrities. They do product endorsements for everything that could possibly go in a kitchen. Sometimes I think, but it's just food. But it's not. What do you ascribe this burgeoning interest in food to? What do I? What do you ascribe this huge burgeoning interest in all things to do with food? What would you put it down to? Well, health. You know, food is um, it's a source of, of nourishment. Um, um, for me, you know, um, you know, there's it's such a wide subject because there are so many different ingredients out there, and every little ingredient does something so beneficial to your body. So I think the connection between food and health and the food and the body and the mind is the most important thing that we all need to go on our own little discovery mission and find out which are the best combinations for our own selves as individuals. So, um, you know, I think for me it is just mind, body, soul, the connection of food to that. And um, and your body is also always changing and your mind is always changing. So you've always got to be open enough to explore and find all those um, you know, there's a different, it's not a diet, but routines that you can implement into your life to maximize your energy. Um, and it's that simple, actually. You can't also give too much attention to it because then it's becoming more of a mental thing. And, and food is it's a feeling. It's something that you've got to digest. It's something that you've got to understand um, as a feeling, not as a concept, not as a, as a dietary plan or as a scientific calculation, even though, yes, there are scientific um, uh, sort of theories out there, but I just think um, that we all need to just come down to a very simple diet first um, and start introducing new things, see how the body reacts, and if it doesn't react well, then do something else. Obviously, if you're allergic to something, it's a no, it's a no, no completely. But um, I think it's a, it's a, it's a connection of the mind, body, and soul, and that's up to everybody to discover that on their own. We'll be back with Nerit Saban from Cape Town talking about her new book, Olami, straight after we've paid the rent. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book. All the books that we are speaking about currently and we're going to speak about have been posted to our Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search for People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. If you're enjoying hearing all about the recipes and the philosophy that Nerit's sharing with us. The details for her book are also posted there. Go to your good bookstore that's always frequent. Ask for um, Olamit by Nerit Saban. If they don't have it, they'll definitely order stock in for you. And then you can continue the conversation that we're starting here on the radio with Nerit. You can continue it in your kitchen. Nerit, can you share one fantastic recipe with our listeners, something interesting easy but has edge something that's wow that they can just go home and make whether it's for you know Shabbos meal tonight or I don't know it's just something easy on Sunday just one really wow recipe um sure uh, <laughs> um, well I think for now for the beautiful summer day that we're having even though um 
Yeah, I would say uh, something that I've been loving to make at home lately is just a simple, if you've got onions, chili, garlic, uh, ginger and tomatoes, just create like a very thick sort of gravy out of that. Um, by frying the onions and once they've got a bit translucent, adding the chili and the garlic and once you can smell the garlic in the kitchen, adding fresh tomato, a little bit of the tomato paste and just creating and then adding a little bit more water just to create like a nice thick gravy. But that's all you need, all those five ingredients so far. And once you've, once it's all boiling on a nice medium heat, um, you can either put in um, like a little bit of baby marrow or aubergine in there and poach it inside of that thick tomatoey gingery sauce. So if you want it to for breakfast, five, you can turn it into shakshuka, even with a bit of a kick with, with the ginger in there, which isn't classically used. Um, or you can poach even uh, beautiful long stem broccoli in there. But um, the secret is just basically to slow cook your gravy to get that mellow flavor coming out of all those robust ingredients. And then whatever hard veg or even soft veg, but nothing, you know, fresh for salads or anything like that, just slowly immersing it into that tomatoey um, gravy and um, slow cooking it in just until your vegetables are soft enough to eat. Um, and with, you'll see with that kind of base how many different dishes you could, can create with that. You can add spices into that and then make a chicken curry. You can reduce it on a very low heat and make a relish out of that and jar it in your fridge to make yummy, delicious tomato-based tomato sandwiches. Um, it's endless. You could do pastas with that base. But I think, you know, in, in the ingredients of using tomato, chili, garlic, and onions is so diverse. And to have those ingredients at in home, you won't, you won't believe if you actually just start playing around with it how many different dishes you can create from such simple, common ingredients. That, that is quite inspirational. I'll write it all down. Who knows? <laughs> I might go and make a big mess in the kitchen this afternoon. Awesome. <laughs> I, I want to ask you, how do you run a restaurant or a deli in Cape Town when there's no water? Do you have new recipes? Do you have to innovate? We, um, I must say, that the, before the water crisis, have always been extremely cautious about water. Um, we don't have a dishwasher here. We don't also serve our food on plates. All our plates are biodegradable, and a lot of our packaging is for takeaways. Um, so at the most, we use about 100, um, about 200 liters of water a day. Um, well, actually, minimum 200 liters of water a day. Um, and so we always try and do our best. But obviously, it's, um, we are being even radically more cautious now and getting hand sanitizers for the bathroom instead of washing hands um, and using we've always used grey water for washing of the floors and all the ups and exteriors um, so we've always been pretty conscious there's a couple of extra technical things that we're going to might have to add into the business if it gets in the next month or so but for now we're actually using um, a very low amount of water so um, there's not actually much less, we, uh, much more we can do at the moment, which we might have to implement a whole new system just to save that extra little bit as well. But like I said, we've actually always been extremely cautious about water. We've always used grey water. We've got uh, solar energy as well. And, um, yeah, we're doing our best at the moment. Do you find inspiration in South African food traditions, cuisine traditions? You're in Cape Town, so you've got the whole Cape Malay his, you know, um, cuisine down the road, but South Africa also has a lot more diverse um, traditions. 
do you find do you find anything of inspiration locally um, I love the produce. Uh, that's my biggest inspiration. Is actually what we uh, the, the the agriculture in Cape Town and South Africa in general is my biggest inspiration. Just having those ingredients whole or and fresh and juicy um, as they are um, is number one for me. But yes, of course, the Cape Malay, the spices. We've got this trading just around the corner that I get all my spices and legumes and and uh, pulses from. Um, and um, yeah, I would say I think like also what I love about uh, South Africa is the whole bright culture. I love roasting things whole and that wood-fired um, flavor and the grill is just out of this world. I'd like to actually start maybe creating a little bright day at our shop in Olani um, because the wood flavor and grill, you just can't beat it. No oven will ever give you that flavor. So I would say, um, yeah, there are greatest my greatest inspiration coming out of South Africa would be our ingredients, like our agriculture, and um, and yeah, and Brivard. <laughs> <laughs> then, last question: Any new projects that you got planned? Uh, maybe a YouTube channel, and a new book, a whole new I don't know menu for the rest for the for the delis. Anything new and exciting that uh, people who follow Nerit Saban can expect? What something that you're going to introduce? Well, you, you know, I've got your book now, and I'm very interested in your 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 food philosophy. Is there anything else that we could? Uh, you know, I'm living in Joburg. I can't come down to to shop at your deli. But uh, are you working on a new book? Are you maybe going to make a few? You, you know, have you thought about making a YouTube channel so that you can share um, you can share some of your your recipes in a different way, in a different on a different medium, on a social media platform. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're going now to seven years and it feels like we've just started. I've got uh, so many ideas or, um, you know, new journeys that we're definitely going to, like, get onto as, as soon as we can. But, you know, time is of an essence. So the future is definitely exciting. And, of course, um, there's going to be new developments coming up soon. A new book, we've just launched this book, so I'm going to give it another three or four months until I, we start maybe creating a new one. But it's definitely something I have in mind. And I think for the next book, I'd like to, I wouldn't call it vegan or vegetarian, um, but I'd like for it to be even more um, uh, natural based. But just be being very simple about it, not going onto the whole superfood side of things. But because I think all food is superfood, but um, I would like to create a book that has actually got even more uh, vegetarian and vegan dishes just because um, I am I just think it's the way forward of the future and um, we should all be eating a little bit less animals um, so yeah that's on the book side that would be definitely a whole new development coming up um, on a YouTube channel it is something just I have been thinking about just because we're already we're cooking all we cook five days a week here it's all happening live if I just got a video guy to come and you know shoot it people could see the whole process from the beginning to the end and it's, it's visually it's such a great thing to watch um, and yeah and I think maybe one a dream of mine is always to create maybe one day a food traveling program where we actually travel the world and document it and cook dishes in, in the cities or villages or whatever with the people and then um, and just expose all the beauties out there um, so yeah there's a lot of new uh, business adventures coming up 
Um, but we've just started the, the year 2018, so we've been off a nice three and a half week holiday, so we're just getting back on track. And then the next two, three months, I'm sure um, everybody's going to be seeing something new and fresh coming out of Olami. Thank you. This has been a half an hour interview with Nirit Saban, the author of Olami and also the chef and the founder of both the Olami and the Sababa delis in Cape Town. It's simple, nourishing, fresh, great, great, great recipes, but they are nothing to intimidate even a beginning uh, beginner cook. It's easy to pick up the book, go to the kitchen, straightforward recipes, straightforward ingredients, and just cook up an absolute creative, simple, nourishing, and fresh storm in the kitchen. Thank you so much, Nirit. It's been quite inspiring. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's really an honor, and I really appreciate it. And for anyone who's just um, tuning in right now, if you want to find out more about Olami, go to our Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search for People of the Book on 101.9 Chai FM. A little bit about the book and who publishes it is there. You can then go to your, the, your, your uh, any bookshop, and if they don't have stock, they'll order in. And you can continue this conversation between myself and Nirit in your own kitchen where Nirit will guide you through these wonderful, wonderful recipes. Thank you, Nirit, and good luck. Thanks. Have a wonderful day. Thanks. Back to people of the book here in Johannesburg. And we've got a number of books that we're going to look at uh, that are already out in the shops. And uh, some of them making big splashes around uh, around the publishing world. The first one I've got uh, is called Sticky Fingers. It's by Joe Hagen, and it's a biography of both a person and a magazine. The person is Jan Winner, and the magazine is Rolling Stone Magazine. This is an excellent biography of Jan Winner. Fifty years after he founded the pop culture magazine, making quite evident uh, the impact that Rolling Stone magazine has had on the music scene and the um, the music scene and on pop culture in a wider in a as as, as a, in a wider uh, in in its widest possible meaning. Um, Rolling Stone began in November 1967 with a photo of John Lennon on his first page and a subscription offer that included a roach clip. In Joe Hagen's biography of the founder of Rolling Stone magazine, Jan Wenner, Hagen writes that the first issue arrived on newsstands like a handshake. Fifty years later, as the magazine industry continues to shrink, this biography arrives almost like a eulogy. The handshake is now bookended on the other side as a eulogy. Not for Wenner, who is 71 and is still at it, editing, but for the days when magazine journalism was adventurous and irreverent, muscular and confident, rather than plagued by evidence of its own demise and doom. It had been teenage girls who made the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, that's the band famous in the U.S., and until 1966, the magazines Tiger Beat and 16 were the primary purveyors of rock fandom. Rolling Stone magazine packaged and marketed a different worldview, that rock music was an art form, a cultural movement, and an artistic expression of a generation's experimentation. 
worthy of analysis from college-educated critics such as Greil Marcus and John Landau. In the early years, the new magazine's audience was young, white, male, and intellectually pretentious. Joe Hagen quotes Bruce Springsteen, who recalls buying the first issue of Rolling Stone magazine from a newsstand in Freehold, New Jersey. And this is the quote. They were the only validating pieces of writing that somebody else out there was thinking about rock music the way you were. Still, it was Gloria Stavers, the 41-year-old editor of Sixteen magazine, which had 4 million subscribers in 1968, who advised Wenner to photograph rock stars with the top button of their trousers undone, and when she encouraged her readers to subscribe, then the dollars started rolling in. When Wenner launched the magazine, he was a 21-year-old striver, a dropout from the University of California, Berkeley. He had grown up the first-born child of Ed and Sim Wenner, who ran a successful baby formula company, until, until Sim quit to write a proto-version of the feminine mystique called Back Away from the Stove. By the time Jan Wenner started Rolling Stone, his parents were divorced. His mother was becoming very active in the counterculture, and he, as a young person, pretty embarrassed about all his mother's new radical uh, expressions, uh, started the magazine. He married a woman, Jane Schindelheim, whose family backed the magazine, but he left her in 1995. Uh, really when the magazine was very very established and uh, he wasn't just uh, an upstart at the beginning of his career but really a person whose career and his influence over the pop culture would make him worthy of a Rolling Stone profile in his own right. Here we watch how the 60s counterculture and music became the defining cultural expression of a generation, how that expression was chronicled in a magazine. And we follow not just the magazine, but the writers of the magazine um, and also the photographers of the magazine as much as the people that they were writing about. Famous contributors to Rolling Stone was Hunter S. Thompson, one of the famous photographers whose career was launched by the magazine, Annie Leibovitz, and we watch their their careers, the magazine, and the the musicians playing, I suppose you could call it musical chairs, all the way from the late 60s through to the current day right today. It's the type of book that you can see hundreds of people very often the musicians themselves have been interviewed in order to make this book uh, possible and it really is a cultural history as well as a biography a biography of Jan Wenner the founder of Rolling Stones magazine and a cultural history of that magazine itself and it's interesting because it is being written at a it's, it's, it's been written, it was written at a time when magazines are falling in their subscription numbers people just aren't supporting print media because so much is so freely available on digital media so it's interesting to see the the the, the trajectory of such an iconic magazine 
uh, through the lens of the, the founder of the magazine at a time when magazines themselves are dying out. The next book I'm going to talk about, I'm going to mention it now because it is available, but we will be interviewing the author in two weeks' time on the 16th of February. The book is called Running Wild, the story of Zulu, an African stallion. The author is David Bris- Bristow, and... When you see the cover of the book, yeah, okay, but when you hear what the book's about, yes, I have to read this. Following in the footsteps of Jock of the Bushveld, Running Wild is an African story for all ages. It is a tale of resilience, of courage and endurance, a book that will uplift, enrich and warm every lover of the African bush. It's February 2000. Cyclone Leon Eline collides with the Mozambican coast, and in 48 hours, the Limpopo River breaks its banks. It has risen 11 meters above its normal flood level. Then the river banks start to crumble. On Mashatu Game Reserve, this is in Botswana, on the Botswana side of the Limpopo River, frantic horses are thrashing around in the rising water. Hay bales two meters high fly past, bouncing like rubber balls. Saddles and wheelbarrows sit in the top of the trees. The manager of Limpopo Horse Bush Safaris, Raf, manages to break down the padlock gate, herd the horses through the gap, and chase them out into the wild. The horses of Limpopo Valley Horse Safaris spend most of their time out grazing and know the lie of the land. Most of the horses return, but not Zulu. He's thought to be lost, possibly to the predators of the Butchveld, or a tragic victim of floods. Years pass before Zulu is discovered to be not only alive and well, but running as the lead stallion of a herd of wild zebras. He's recaptured and returned to the safari stables as a much bolder and wiser stallion. Knowledge he passes on to the other horses, as well as the humans of the Limpopo Valley. This is Running Wild, the story of Zulu, an African stallion by David Bristow. I'll talk a bit more about it straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book. We're talking books. We've interviewed South African author from Cape Town and um, Delhi owner and chef. Nirit Saban about her latest book called Olami. It's a recipe book, simple, nourishing and fresh. And uh, the book is available in shops at the moment. We looked at a biography and a cultural history. The biography is of Jan Winner and the same book, Sticky Fingers by Jai Hagen, is also a cultural history of the Rolling Stone magazine, one of America's iconic magazines covering the music scene from the 60s till today. And now we're looking at a South African book called Running Wild, the story of Zulu, an African stallion. David Bristow has written about a horse who, during the... The, the cyclone in 2000 escaped the floodwaters and ended up living among a herd of wild zebra but he became the lead stallion of that herd of wild zebra the book is absolutely fascinating tracking Zulu from a farm in the Orange Free State through time spent at Understeport where horses are used to make antivenom or snake serum then to the Limpopo River Valley on the Botswana side where this very, very intriguing development happens where a, a stallion, a horse, becomes the lead stallion of a zebra, a herd of zebra. Uh, the book is written 
with such a sense of humor, such a sense of understanding South African culture, so many different facts from every possible part of South African life explained, elaborated and elucidated, the history of Honest Report as well as what it's like running and being on a, wild, uh, a horse safari in the Limpopo Valley. This is its fascinating. It's very entertaining. It is quite riveting. And David Bristow will be in the studio in two weeks' time as our guest to talk about Zulu, the story of an African stallion. The next book that I'm going to talk about, I'm not, not so much going to talk about the book as about the story behind the book. The book is available in shops at the moment. It is uh, burning up the lists, the bestseller lists, both sides of the Atlantic in America and also definitely in, Ameri- uh, in, 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 in England as well. The book is the, the latest must-read Domestic psychological thriller. It's called The Woman in the Window. And thank goodness they left the girl out the title. You know, rather put woman than girl because we've had too many domestic thrillers with the word girl in the title. This one is written by A.J. Finn and there's just such a great story about the book. Um, this is from a profile in the Guardian newspaper. Having written, written his debut novel in Total Secrecy and published it under a pseudonym, Daniel Mallory has been astounded that the woman in the window has created a worldwide bidding frenzy. Last year, Daniel Mallory had one of those weeks that all first-time novelists fantasize about. Through an agent, he had submitted his manuscript to several publishers and was about to take a short holiday. The excitement started when he arrived at Newark Airport in New York to take a plane to Palm Springs. That was when the first offer to publish his book came in. After that, Mallory says... It was the full dream. He's phoned it up with offers and messages like in the movies. I was going on holiday with someone and he was taking a separate flight. And he texted me in mid-flight and asked, how is your flight? I texted back, life changing. And he wrote, LOL. And I was like, no, really. The book, The Woman in the Window, was already being talked of as the natural successor to Gillian Flynn's Gone Girl and Paula Hawkins' The Girl on the Train. By the time Mallory returned to New York a few days later, a worldwide auction was in place for his book, with offers reported in the seven figures. By then, the film rights had been preemptively sold to Fox. Unlike the one or two other debut authors who each year win that particular, lo- that particular lottery, Mallory now 38, was not a stranger to this process. When he submitted his manuscript under the general neutral pseudonym A.J. Finn, which is the, 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 the title, the author title that the book's published under, he was a senior editor at the New York publishing house William Morrow, which is part of HarperCollins. Prior to that, he had been a publisher of the British mass market crime imprint Sphere, Sphere is an imprint part of Little Brown. The authors he published, including Karen Slaughter, Peter Robinson, and Nikki French, had known auctions of their own. In the end, Mallory sold the American rights to Morrow, the publisher he worked for, who did not initially know it was his novel. His novel went on to secure him deals in 37 different territories. We think it might be a record for a debut novel, he suggests. And The Woman in the Window... 
boasts blurbs from Stephen King, who says, unputdownable, and Gillian Flynn, who says, astounding, amazing. The movie has been produced by Scott Rudden, who's the Oscar winner for No Country for Old Men. Mallory is preparing himself for a blitz of publicity of the kind he has previously orchestrated for others, the authors under his editorship. It is, on one hand, something that fills him with dread. I'm an intensely private person, he says. On the other, it's a fascinating duty. He says the Czechs in Czech Republic, for example, have 30,000 copies in print. This is the story behind A.J. Finn, who really is not A.J. Finn. That's just a pseudonym. He's really Daniel Mallory, and it's a dark domestic thriller, psychological thriller, like Gone Girl or Girl on the Train, and it's it's a book that is in the shops already, and it's burning its way up to the top of the bestsellers lists. The book itself is about a woman who. Uh, we'll, we'll get back to what the book's about straight after this ad break. People of the Book on one hundred one point nine High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 Chai FM. We're talking books. We had an interview with Nirit Saban, the chef and founder of both the Olami and the Sababa. Uh, I keep going blank. Um, Delis in Cape Town. And her book, Olami, is Simple, Nourishing and Fresh Recipes. She gets inspiration from nature. And uh, that. It's, it's it's a beautiful book with fan- beautiful, magnificent photos of all the different dishes that she shows us how to make. Then we looked at biography and cultural history, Sticky Fingers by Joe Hagen, published by Cannon Gate. It's the life and times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone magazine. Running Wild, the story of Zulu and African Stallion was next. It's by David Bristow. It's the story of how a horse on a game reserve was used for safaris through the game reserve escaped the floods in 2000 and ended up, as discovered years later, being the head stallion of a herd of wild zebra. The author, David Bristow, will be in the studio with us in two weeks' time to discuss his book, but it is a wonderfully entertaining and fascinating read, covering so much about horse life in South Africa, making anti-snake venom injections across the board, whatever topic David looks at in order to understand the story of Zulu better just becomes a fascinating fascinating aside in what is a very entertaining read then we look we're looking at not so much the book The Woman in the Window by A.J. Finn but the story behind the book um, A.J. Finn is really Daniel Mallory he works in publishing in New York he wrote the book he submitted it anonymously it went from uh, f- from his agent to publishing houses and there was a bidding frenzy around the world in all different territories for the right to publish the book it is the latest in a long line of domestic psychological thrillers that have either girl or woman in the title so gone girl, girl on the train now we have the girl in the window and uh, we'll talk a bit more about the book when we actually talk about the book but just the story about the book is just so uh, interesting that uh, I decided to include it in the show today just to discuss that part of the book now the last book that we're going to have time for today is a book 
by Richard Flanagan, who won the Man Booker Prize in 2015. And that was for a book that we did review on the show straight after it, shortly after it won the, the, the Man Booker Prize. That book was The Narrow Road to the Deep North. Uh, Richard Flanagan is Australian, and he often puts Australia into his books, very strongly becomes a part of the actual book. Uh, other books that he has written, Wanting, which was about uh, strong, strong Charles Dickens, uh, s- uh, fictional account of Charles Dickens. He's written thrillers like The Unknown Terrorist and uh, otherwise literary books. He is definitely, definitely someone to watch because his writing is so magnificent. The book that won the the Booker Prize, The Narrow Road to the Deep North. It was a very challenging book based on a tr- true events in his father's life during World War II, but a beautifully written book about very harsh conditions during World War II, b- building a railway line across Burma, war prisoners building a railway line across Burma. This book is absolutely t- you could, could have almost been written by a different author. It's based on an event in Richard Flanagan's earlier life when he was a struggling author. His wife was pregnant, expecting a baby or twins, and he was struggling to pay the bills, and he was asked to ghostwrite um, the memoirs of a big Australian criminal. And in the book, the main character is... Kiff Kelman, who is struggling to make ends meet, and he writes a memoir for a criminal. That criminal, they have a contract, he has to write the book in six weeks before the the con man goes to trial, and the con man dies before the end of the writing process. We're looking at authenticity, we're looking at the creative process, we're looking at fraud, we're looking at ghostwriting. Ghostwriting has actually become a topic of literary fiction, starting with the book Ghost, written by Robert Harris, which was based on Tony Blair and someone writing Tony Blair's political memoirs. Here, Richard Flanagan casts himself in a semi-autobiographical book to the ghostwriter of Siegfried uh, Heidel, who is on trial for defrauding banks in Australia of 700 million Australian dollars. It's a compelling, but it turns comic and chilling, haunting journey into the creative process and into fraud, into ghostwriting, into fronting for others. And it's by a man, Booker, prize-winning author. So that's Richard Finnegan. It is quite literary, but it's also quite a thriller as well. All the books that we've discussed on the show today, either they are posted on our Facebook page, I'll add, I'll just add Running Wilds to the list as well. And just go to Facebook, search for people of the book on 101.9 High FM, and you'll find all those books there. Until next week, good Shabbos and keep reading.